Well, if you want to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1, Mark chapter 1, we're continuing in our sermon series in Mark's gospel that we begun uh, about six Sundays ago. We're still in chapter 1, just kind of slowly inching our way through Mark's gospel. And uh, this summer, uh, in just a few weeks, we're going to take a little break for the summer months from Mark, uh, as we had planned. And uh, we're actually going to go through uh, the epistle of Jude, Jude's letter uh, in the New Testament for about seven weeks before we get back into Mark's gospel. Um, but we'll finish up chapter one before we take the, the summer break from Mark's gospel and spend some time in Jude. Um, but uh, for now, we are covering verses 21 to 34 of Mark chapter one. And when you get there, you can stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word. <clears throat> Let's listen with reverence and joy, because this is the word of our God. Mark writes, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed. So that they question among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening, at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we need the Holy Spirit. So pour him out upon us now that I might preach with truth and grace, with love and power, and that we might hear your word with open ears and soft hearts, receiving your word, trusting your word, obeying your word, believing your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, long before most people have had their first cup of coffee, Aaron Franklin is on his third espresso, writes Andrew Knowlton 
in his article entitled, A Day in the Life of Aaron Franklin, a Barbecue Genius. Uh, Aaron Franklin is the owner and, and pitmaster of one of the most highly regarded barbecue restaurants in the country, Franklin Barbecue in Austin, Texas. And as the title of the article states, the intention of, of the article is, is to simply take the reader through a typical day in the life of Aaron Franklin. Uh, Knowlton goes on to write, he says, when you're smoking the best barbecue in the country, your day starts very early. In order to get his impossibly tender brisket and ribs ready for the lunch rush, Franklin arrives at his no-frills restaurant, Franklin Barbecue, in East Austin, Texas, at 3.30 a.m. The article goes on to clock his schedule. 3.45, he's putting the oak in the fire pit. 4.15, he's seasoning the pork ribs. 4.30, he's getting his second shot of espresso out of his espresso machine that he got for himself and his staff in the kitchen there. At 6 a.m., he's checking the smoker. 6.30, he's putting the ribs on, and on and on, Knowlton goes. Knowlton says that by 10 o'clock, a line of bleary-eyed college kids, office workers abusing their so-called lunch hour, and barbecue geeks will form. By 1.15 p.m., the dreaded sign will be posted, sorry, sold out, come back soon. Now, this article in Bon Appetit magazine is a, a good example of uh, a day-in-the-life genre of storytelling. Sometimes it's also called slice-of-life storytelling. Uh, and it's an interesting way to, to tell a story because in describing someone's typical day, you can get a, you can get a good feel for what the whole of their life is like. Uh, I think it was Annie Dillard that said, uh, the way that we spend our days is, of course, the way we spend our lives. Uh, and for Aaron Franklin... He's spending his days, his entire life, because he's spending his days busy and in front of a barbecue pit cooking up delicious meats for hungry bellies. Now, Mark is doing something similar here with Jesus. He's giving us a, a day in the life in the ministry of Jesus of Nazareth, a day in the life of Jesus of Nazareth during his earthly ministry. He's giving us a little slice and sliver of his life. Notice that Mark is describing a 24-hour period here. It's a Sabbath day, a single day. But what's more is that Mark is telling us that what we find here in this passage was something of a typical day for Jesus in his earthly ministry. We see this if we look at verse 29 of Mark chapter 1 here. Mark says that he went throughout all of Galilee preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. So the exact thing he's doing here in Capernaum is the exact thing that he went on to do in other places throughout the region of Galilee and throughout Israel later on. For Jesus, as for all of us, the way that he spent his days is, of course, the way that he spent his life, which will be confirmed for us as we go on to read throughout Mark, many of the occurrences of Jesus teaching and casting out demons and healing and whatnot. This is a day in the life of Jesus. But then the question emerges for us, what is this day in the life of Jesus telling us? What, what is happening here in this particular day, and why is it significant? What's, what's the message that God is sending by including these particular details in this particular place in the life and ministry of Jesus in the gospel according to Mark? Well, if you would remember Dan's sermon from last week, uh, in the pronouncement of the arrival of the kingdom of God, we see that this text, being on the heels of that pronouncement, 
is Mark's way of confirming the truthfulness of Jesus' message. Jesus has announced that the kingdom of God is arriving in him. And here, as he teaches, as he casts out demons, and as he heals the sick, all with absolute authority, we see that message of the arrival of the kingdom demonstrated and confirmed. Uh, The big idea here is that Jesus confirms that he's the king who is bringing God's kingdom. And uh, we'll see that big idea confirmed as we look at three actions of Jesus. Number one, Jesus teaches with authority in verses 21, 22. Number two, Jesus casts out demons in verses 23 to 28. And third, Jesus heals the afflicted in verses 29 to 34. So first, Jesus teaches with authority. Look at verses 21 and 22. They say, and they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue, (coughs) excuse me, and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. So here we find Jesus in Capernaum which was, uh, you know, something of a larger city in the region of Galilee. It was right on the the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And it was even something of a a, a home or center of operation for Jesus. Uh, In Matthew 9.1, Matthew even refers to it as Jesus' own city. Uh, So apparently in adulthood, Jesus had moved from Nazareth to Capernaum. And uh, it was evidently where both Peter and Andrew and, and, uh, and possibly James and John were from. And the synagogue here has been a matter of, uh, of historical interest as this particular synagogue was recently excavated and discovered. And it's a, a matter of interest because of the records we have of Jesus teaching there in the Gospels. Uh, now, some of the events that occurred here in our text uh, are not at all abnormal. So, in fact, it might even, if you were there, it might even feel somewhat familiar to you. You know, what we do Sunday in and Sunday out is really what what churches have been doing Sunday in and Sunday out since the first century. And what churches did in the first century was largely based on what Jews did in their synagogues throughout the Greco-Roman world with with some differences. Uh, But a major part of their worship gatherings was teaching. They would sing and pray, of course, but they would always have a special time set aside for the reading of the scriptures and then a time of teaching based on the reading. And evidently, uh, when Jesus entered the synagogue on the Sabbath, uh, they knew him, they recognized him, and so they invited him to teach that day. It was a pretty normal occurrence. However, this is kind of where the normal occurrences end, uh, because what happened next astonished those present. What happened next is that Jesus taught with authority, not like the scribes, Mark says, they're normal teachers, not, not like they did. Jesus taught with authority. Uh, in our kind of common parlance today, we might say that while the, the scribes would teach, Jesus preached. Uh, you, you see, when, when the scribes would teach, they were known for getting up and simply regurgitating some stuff that uh, they had read from one rabbi or another in order to make their point, as Rabbi Gamaliel once said, uh, and of course, we should remember the words of Rabbi Eliezer, and, and on and on they would go. And they would typically quote a long list of rabbis ad nauseum on the matter to make their point. It would sound something like a lawyer 
uh, quoting a long list of legal records in order to show precedence for their argument. It's kind of what it would sound like. But Jesus didn't preach like that. He preached with authority. Uh, and, and often when we hear the word, uh, uh, when, when we hear about someone teaching and preaching with authority, we might interpret it as, as meaning like that they had a, a kind of gravitas, uh, a weighty presence, or, or that they were uh, kind of a charismatic personality that really held the attention of the room, or that they yelled a lot. You know, I like yelling and everything, but uh, it's, uh, that's not exactly what uh, Mark is saying here. Of course, Jesus really held the attention of the room, but this word authority communicates more than that. It's communicating that the truth that Jesus was teaching originated with him. He taught with authority because he was the author of the truth that he was teaching. That's what this Greek word here means. It means that the truth he was teaching was originated, it came from, it exuded from, it, it came from him. Uh, of course, we know that he's the author of all truth because he's God, and thus when Jesus speaks and teaches, his authority has to be evident. He has unparalleled authority. He teaches as the one in whom the truth originates. That's why his teaching is so astonishing and shocking to those present. This was a sign that the kingdom of God had come among them because here sits the king of the kingdom, God himself, come in human flesh as is evidenced by the authority of his teaching. Now, how does this apply to, to us as Christians and as a church today? Uh, well, part of what we would do well to, to remember and consider and reflect on is the importance of teaching in the kingdom of God. We, we see here that teaching is actually an essential part of the arrival of the kingdom of God. We live in a day where, where many in our kind of circles can tend to disparage teaching uh, Christians in the West, at least, can, can be pretty down on preaching and teaching in the church. It's not rare that you'll hear people say things like, you know, Jesus is not interested in passing information, but in transformation. Uh, but what misguided sayings like that miss is that it's most often through the passing on of information that Jesus brings transformation. The Lord ordinarily brings about the transformation of his people through teaching. He's the one that does it, but he does it through teaching. Not just any kind of teaching, of course, but this kind of teaching with authority. And not in the sense that we normally think of it as, you know, with a bunch of yelling or a person with gravitas or charismatic personality or whatever, but teaching which is derived from the very author of truth. And this is, of course, precisely what we're called to do in the Great Commission. Uh, that Jesus gave us before his ascension. We're called to make disciples by teaching all that Jesus commanded us. We're to teach his teaching. That's where the, our authority comes from. And this is one reason why we so highly value expositional preaching here at Veritas. Uh, expositional preaching is a certain method of preaching uh, wherein the content of the scripture text at hand uh, is the content uh, is the content of the sermon. The content of the sermon is based on the content of the text at hand. Uh, another way to put it is that preaching the sermon is simply exposing the text at hand. Expository preaching is exposing the Bible. Uh, but that, that's, that's its basic definition. There are multiple styles, but that's its, its kind of basic definition. Uh, and we can think of it in contrast with other styles of of preaching, in which the preacher is not seeking to expose God's word, 
but is using God's word as a platform to talk about something else. You know, the text is missed completely or is used as a springboard to simply talk about the preacher's pet subject. A a text is taken, stripped of its context, and the preacher talks to the congregation about um, whatever they like, five tips on how to have a better job or five tips on how to have a better marriage or whatever. Uh, That's not what we're trying to do. Uh, Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word. God's word is what we're to preach. That's where our authority comes from. Uh, and of course, you know, we don't teach with the, the kind of authority that Jesus taught here, taught with here. He taught as the author, the originator. Uh, to use older language, he taught as the one with magisterial authority. Uh, we don't teach with magisterial authority. That is with ultimate authority. I'm not teaching with magisterial authority here. Uh, I'm teaching with a ministerial authority. I teach with an authority that is derived from Christ. And I only teach with an authority that is derived from Christ insofar as I teach in a manner consistent with his word. We only teach with this kind of authority insofar as our teaching is derived from Holy Scripture. That's why we so highly value expositional preaching here. Uh, But then that that not only applies to you know, like me and Dan and other uh, pastors that we have visit here who preach from the pulpit of our church, uh, the Word of God is not chained to the pulpit here. Not all of us are called to this kind of preaching, but you're all called to teaching in some way, shape, or form. Uh, You're responsible in some measure to teach others, even if not in a formal setting. Uh, In Titus 2, 3, and 4, we find that the older women in a church are supposed to teach and instruct younger women in the church. Likewise, we might say that older men in a church are called to teach younger men in the church regarding how to be godly men, and and older women are supposed to teach younger women how to be godly women. Uh, We don't have a lot of older uh, men and women in our church. Uh, Those of you who are older, we need you to be doing this. We need your wisdom and your help, Uh, but even to those of you who wouldn't consider yourself older, you're probably older than someone uh, in our church, and so maybe a good application of this might be to, to, to simply find someone who is of the same sex that's younger than you and walk alongside them, teaching them and instructing them in the faith. Uh, perhaps there's someone in your community group who fits that description. Take them out for coffee, have them over for dinner, read the scriptures with them, talk about what the scriptures say with them. Uh, parents, uh, we find in Ephesians 6.4, that we're to raise our children, Paul says, in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We're to teach and instruct our children. Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 9, will tell us that we're to teach God's word diligently to our children when we're traveling outside of the house, when we're sitting or resting in our houses, uh, when we're getting up from the day and just the everyday ordinary activities. We're to look for every opportunity to teach our children what the Word of God says. And so when you sit around the dinner table at night, after you're done eating, take out the scriptures, talk about what the scriptures say, read them, talk about them. Uh, When you're in your car on your way home from church this morning, talk with your children about the service and the sermon. Uh, When when, uh, your children sin and they need to be disciplined, that's an opportunity to teach them the scriptures, teach them what God has said in his word. 
Uh, and then don't, even, don't only think about those in our church and in our households. Think about those outside of our church and households. Uh, think about your unbelieving neighbors and friends and, and coworkers. Or are you praying and looking for opportunities to speak with particular people about Christ and his gospel? Uh, if, if there's someone that you've been having ongoing conversations with, uh, ask them if they'd like to read through a book of the Bible with you. Mark would be a really good book of the Bible to read through with them and talk about it. Perhaps they'd be willing to do that with you. Keep your eyes open for such opportunities uh, to teach in these ways. And all this, we're to be teaching and passing on the teachings of Jesus to others. This is a sign that the kingdom of God has come among us as it had come to those in the synagogue on that Sabbath day. Uh, But then we we go on to see that Jesus' kingship and kingdom is not only confirmed by his teaching, but also by the act of casting out a demon. Uh, Look at verses 23 and 28. 23 to 28 says, And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him, crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. So we see here that Jesus' authoritative word not only astonishes, but it also disturbs and commands and casts out demons. Jesus' authoritative word vanquishes unclean spirits or demons. As Jesus is teaching in the synagogue, a demon is so disturbed by his authoritative teaching that he rears his ugly head. There's a man, <coughs> excuse me, sitting in the pews that was possessed by a demon uh, and it's interesting, the SV says that there was, uh, this man was there with an unclean spirit, it says. I might actually translate it a, a bit differently, saying that in the synagogue, there was a man in an unclean spirit. The demon had seemed to uh, take such command and control of this man's life, the man didn't merely have an unclean spirit, he was in an unclean spirit. And this is demonstrated by the fact that the man comes to take over the man's personality and faculties. Uh, The demon begins to speak to Jesus through the man, exercising such a power and influence over the man that he's able to take over in this particular moment, which gives occasion for us to remember that demons or unclean spirits are powerful foes. Uh, They're not something to be flippant or indifferent about. They possess great power and ability. They ought to be regarded. And and yet their power is nothing compared to the power and authority of Jesus. Notice here that the demon comes into conflict with Jesus, and he even names Jesus. Some scholars think that this is a method of trying to exercise authority over Jesus. In the first century Jewish world, uh, naming something was a method of trying to exercise authority over it. And so the demon may have been trying to do that here. The demon says, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. You see how he names Jesus. In fact, that was was sometimes a method that Jewish exorcists 
would uh, try with demons uh, in situations like this in those days. Jewish exorcists, uh, whenever they would come in contact with de- demons and demonized people, they would try to determine the name of the demon in order to gain authority over it and to cast it out. And uh, they would have all of these methods and these rituals and these formulas and these incantations for trying to, to cast out demons. But notice, Jesus doesn't need to do any of that. He doesn't do any of that here. He, he doesn't need to find out the name. He doesn't do any incantations or formulas or rituals. He simply says to the demon, shut up and come out of him. And immediately the demon does so. Jesus commands the demon and it has no choice but to obey him because he's the one with authority. He's the king of the kingdom. Now, part of the difficulty when we come to a passage like this in our context is that uh, you know, we Westerners can tend to be somewhat skeptical about events and episodes such as this. Uh, and, 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 and since this is actually the first of many demonic encounters in Mark's gospel, we should probably just go ahead and address the matter uh, you know, because, you know, after the Enlightenment, uh, we can have the tendency to seek to explain away passages like this and everything with, with merely, uh, you know, naturalistic explanations, sociological, psychological, physiological causes. And so we might come to a passage like this and say, you know, there's no way that this man was actually demon-possessed. Instead, he probably had a mental illness. There's a physiological or psychological cause uh, and, and those present interpret this, interpreted this as a spiritual issue, a demonic spirit, because of their pre-modern and, and primitive culture. There's a sociological uh, explanation there. But uh, if that's you here today, I, I want to I push back. Uh, I want to push back. I, I want you to take time to consider a few things. First, I want you to consider that you're being naive, that you're being naive. If you're skeptical about demons and spirits and these sorts of, I, I want you to consider that you're being naive, I, 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 they, that you seriously have a limited view of life in the world. Again, you, if you think that everything can exp- be explained by uh, naturalistic causes, psychological, physiological, sociological causes, you're missing an important piece and that there are spiritual causes to events in the world. And if you miss that piece, then you're missing something of the, the complexity and multidimensional nature of reality and of creation. Yes, there are often natural causes to things. Sociological factors, physiological factors, psychological factors. These kind of things must be taken into account and into consideration as well as spiritual factors. And the Bible accounts for this kind of complexity that we meet with in the world. In just the next section of our text, Jesus deals with physiological matters of illness. He heals. And in other parts of Scripture, uh, these other factors are well considered and dealt with. Christianity has the complexity of this life and this world in full view, uh, considering all of these different factors, not leaving anyone out. Uh, I've seen Richard Baxter cited as a good example of this. Uh, Baxter, he was an old Puritan pastor, and he wrote a book on depression, and uh, when he undertook to try to explain the, the cause of depression, he had a very well-developed and complex view of the world and of life. And so he says in his book, you know, when, when he's undertaking to, to explain the causes of depression, he says, maybe depression is caused by physiological factors. 
Uh, And in that case, you might need food or sleep or medicine or something like that. Uh, But then he says that there also might be psychological factors. Uh, And in that case, a depressed person uh, might need encouragement and close friendship or maybe to get off social media for a time. You probably should do that. Um, Or he says depression might be a moral issue at times. Uh, a person might be depressed because they're, they're living in a state of unrepentance, sinning and not confessing to the Lord and, and, and turning away from their sin. And the conviction of the Holy Spirit is, is weighing heavily upon them and bringing them into a state of sadness and melancholy. And, and, and so what that person needs to do is repent their sin and, and, and confess it. Or, he says, it could be a spiritual issue. It might be the cause of a demonic scheme to, to hurt the person and cause them distress. Or, 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 or Baxter goes on to say, it could be a combination of two or more of these things. And so you see how, how he's viewing the, the, uh, the life and reality in the world in terms of the, the complexity it de- deserves. That's biblical. And likewise, we should be biblical regarding these kinds of matters. We shouldn't be naive when spiritual issues come up, seeking to explain everything away with naturalistic explanations. We should have the full complexity of the created order in view. Uh, Second, I want you to consider that you're being culturally narrow, uh, that you're being culturally narrow. I know it's it's particularly in the U.S. or other Western countries uh, that an episode like in our text today is met with skepticism and suspicion. I want you to realize that the vast majority of other cultures in the world wouldn't be at all shocked by the presence of an evil spirit in our text. And that, in fact, they would believe that evil spirits exist and that they're part of what helps explain why the world is the way that it is. And what's more is that, you know, many people in many other cultures throughout the world have direct encounters with evil spirits far more than we do in the U.S. If, if you go to a church in Ghana or Haiti or Brazil or plenty of other non-Western countries, you're far more likely to meet people who've had direct encounters with the demonic. And it's hard to say why that is exactly. Uh, that's not to say it never happens here in the States. I've seen it happen. Uh, but I, I, I think it's safe to say that it happens more in non-Western countries than it does in Western countries. And I'd simply ask you, if you're skeptical about this, how do you explain that? How do you explain that? How do you explain what, what Mark says in this text? And don't be culturally narrow or prejudiced by disparaging the intelligence and wisdom of peoples throughout the world or, or the people in our text here this morning. Don't be culturally narrow. Uh, third, I want you to consider that you're being inconsistent. You know, that is, if, if you believe in God, if, if you believe in a good spiritual being, if you believe in a spiritual being who's intent to do you good and to care for you, if that's the case, is it really that hard to believe in evil spiritual beings? Is it really that much of a stretch? In fact, it's not a stretch at all. It makes total sense given that the world is the way that it is with so much evil and so much sin and so much suffering. Where does all of that come from? Don't be inconsistent, especially if you're someone who professes to follow Jesus. I mean, these demonic encounters are in Scripture. And of course, you know, we, we might all struggle with, with doubts sometimes, and we should be willing to voice those doubts with, uh, to mature believers and ask for the help of others to work through them. But at the end of the day, this story is in the inspired Word of God, and you either believe 
and you're fighting against unbelief or you're not a Christian. You should not straddle the fence here. Don't be inconsistent. And then fourth, I want you to consider that if you remain skeptical or unbelieving regarding the existence and presence of evil spiritual beings, that you're going to miss out on an essential part of why Jesus has come. And we get this right out of the mouth of the demon in this text here. He has good theology. Uh, He says, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. He gets Jesus' identity right. Jesus is the Holy One of God. He's the Messiah. But what's more, he knows why Jesus has come. Have you come to destroy us? If you go over to to John 3.8, you go, yeah, that's exactly right. Where Jesus says uh, that the reason the Son of God has appeared is to destroy the works of the devil. And an essential demonstration of that is found in Jesus casting out demons. Matthew 12, 28, Jesus says, If it's by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, and the kingdom of God has come upon you, is demonstrating that the kingdom of God has come and that Jesus has come to destroy the works of the devil, to stomp on the head of the devil and, and his demonic army. The works of the devil are being destroyed, and this is signified by Jesus casting out demons. You see, my friends, part of why what Jesus has come to do is trample down the devil and his demonic army underfoot and to achieve his decisive victory over them. And he does this in his life, in his ministry, in his death, and his resurrection, going all the way back to that promise in Genesis 3.15. This horrid serpent, the devil, will bruise the heel of that promised Messiah. And he has In the death of the Lord Jesus, the the heel of Jesus was bruised on the cross of Calvary. But on the cross of Calvary, Jesus delivered the decisive blow to our satanic enemy. He crushed the head of that serpent. And one day, when he returns again, he will finally cast Satan and his demonic army into the lake of fire to suffer there forever and ever, Revelation 20.10 tells us. But even now, in the already and not yet of the kingdom, he has achieved victory over Satan. And in achieving victory, this victory over Satan, he has achieved this victory for his people. As we just saw in the Christian in Battle sermon series a few weeks ago, if you're faithfully living as a follower of Christ on the mission of Christ, you're going to meet with attacks from your enemy. He's going to come to tempt you or discourage you or distract you or shame you. And when that happens, you need to understand that Jesus has come to destroy the works of the devil and he has been successful. He has authority over the demons. He can command them and cast them out. This is Martin Luther's beloved uh, hymn, A Mighty Fortress Says. And in this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us. We will not fear for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can't endure for lo, his doom is sure. Listen, one little word shall fell him. One little word. Jesus has achieved victory over Satan He has triumphed over Satan and crushed his head. This is a sign that the kingdom of God has come 
in that Jesus is king. He casts out demons. He destroys the works of the devil. And of course, last but not least, he teaches with authority. He casts out demons. And third, Jesus heals the afflicted. Jesus heals the afflicted. We need to move quickly here because we're running out of time. Pick it back up in verse 29. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Now, there's a lot here. We don't have time to cover it all, but essentially, the narrative lays out how Jesus went to the house of Peter. Peter's wife's mother was there. His mother-in-law was there, sick with a fever, and so Jesus heals her. And then at sundown, the masses come out to bring their sick and demonically oppressed for Jesus to heal and set free. And the reason that they waited till sundown is because it was the Sabbath and there were rules uh, amongst the Jews regarding uh, how far they were allowed to travel on the Sabbath. And uh, in Israel, they didn't measure days like we do. They measured days from sundown to sundown. Uh, So the Sabbath would have started Friday night and then ended Saturday night. And at at the the sundown Sabbath night, the people were then permitted to to travel and to carry their sick and oppressed loved ones to where Jesus was with his disciples. But the specific example that precedes all this is the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. And consistent with what we've already seen with the authority of Jesus here in teaching and with the authority of Jesus casting out demons, we continue to see his authority over the created order and his authority over, in particular, illness. And understand, there's, there's nothing like, the, this is nothing like the great hubbub that you often see with you know, many so-called faith healers who throw large events and who stage people in the crowd to fake an illness or injury and, and then you know, they're healed by some rich celebrity preacher who's wearing a Dr. Evil kind of suit or whatever. Uh, this is nothing like that. You know, Jesus comes in, they're actually in a private setting, and he's not doing this to impress a crowd, no hubbub. He simply lifts Peter's mother-in-law by the hand and she begins to serve them. Uh, now before anyone takes offense, there's nothing sexist in that statement, okay? Uh, Peter and, and Jesus didn't come in and say, man, I wish we could get some pizza rolls. You should probably heal your mother-in-law so she can go make us some pizza rolls. It's nothing like that at all. Uh, Simon's mother-in-law arising to serve them is meant to show that the healing was immediate and full. It's meant to show forth the authority and power of Jesus over the material realm and over the sickness that was plaguing the body of Simon's mother-in-law. This was a display of Jesus' authority, and it's a display of what he was using his authority to do, namely, usher in the kingdom of God. And this, this, demonstration, this demonstrates that uh, in that the kingdom of God is a place of complete wholeness and harmony and peace and shalom. If you think of the Garden of Eden, the place of the kingdom of God in the beginning, there was no sin, 
No sadness, no suffering, no sickness, no fevers. There was wholeness and harmony and shalom. And sin and suffering and sickness didn't come into the world until we made a mess of things with our sin. And then when we think about the full arrival of the kingdom of God and the victory of the kingdom of God coming in full in Revelation 21.4, where God will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. In the future, at the full arrival of the kingdom of God, again, sin, sadness, suffering, sickness will be completely eradicated from God's beloved creation and his sons and daughters. Well, here in Mark 1, the kingdom of God has not arrived in full But Jesus is giving a sign and a foretaste of what that day will be like when every illness and every injury and every pain and every disorder and every disease will be forever eradicated. And your body, Christian, your body will be fully and completely healed. Tim Chester sums up the miracles of Mark's gospel well in his book, Crown of Thorns. He says, Jesus does not fit into our broken world. He bursts our expectations. His miracles are extraordinary, but this is not because what he did could not happen or did not happen. To judge his miracles by our experience is to miss the point. They do not belong in this world because they are a glimpse of another world. They are a sign of God's coming world. The world we have created is a world of famine, injustice, division, and hurt, but the kingdom of Jesus is very different. For a moment in history, we were given a glimpse of that coming reality. The poor are fed, the sick are healed, the dead are raised, evil is defeated. This is the future of the kingdom of God. And with that, we see that this day in the life of Jesus is not just a day in the life of Jesus. This day in the life of Jesus is a preview of the future coming kingdom of God. This is a glimpse of what awaits us as God's beloved children and as citizens of his kingdom. My friends, the day is coming wherein we will see Jesus face to face and we will hear his lovely voice. The day is coming wherein all those who contest the rule of King Jesus will be cast out into the lake of fire forever and ever, never to oppress or tempt or shame us again. And all sickness and all suffering will be fully and finally eradicated because we will be raised in glory just like Jesus who has gone before us. This is a day in the life of we who are citizens of the kingdom of God when Christ returns to make all things new. May our imaginations be captured by this narrative this morning, and may we live in the hope that this alone can give. Let's pray. Father, would you seal this word upon our hearts, cause our imaginations, our minds, our hearts to be so captured by this uh, preview of the kingdom of God and and, and uh, a day in the life of Jesus. Help us Lord, to to trust what this 
says here, to believe it, to apply it to our lives faithfully and in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we confess our need for you in order to do this. So help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.